Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Okunbii. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Geert Wilders, a far-right politician, caused a huge shock when he won the Dutch elections last month. But now he's struggling to forge the coalitions that he needs to rule. And they're furry, flashy, but also a nuisance on the streets of Soho. Our correspondent explains why it's time to regulate London's pedicabs. First up, though. It's an extraordinary decision. Colorado Supreme Court has ruled that Donald Trump is ineligible to run for president again and cannot appear on the state's primary ballot. The court has disqualified the former president based on a 14th Amendment provision barring insurrectionists from holding office. Could this be the first of many? Similar lawsuits have been filed in nearly 30 states. Mr Trump is sure to appeal to America's Supreme Court and characteristically may find a way to use the situation to his advantage. This decision looks like a surprise, but it's been a while coming. John Priddo is our US editor. However, if you're waking up this morning to headlines about Donald Trump being struck off the ballot and wondering whether this hobbles his chances of becoming president again, the answer to that, I think, is very probably no, it does not. But there is a but. Okay, before we get into the buts, what's the background to this case? The background to this is that in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, there's some language that bars people who, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the country or who have given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof from standing for election to federal office. Now, that language is there because after the Civil War, members of Congress who'd supported the Union, in many cases fought for the Union, wanted to prevent Confederates from holding federal office and effectively undoing the results or threatening to undo the results of the Civil War. And so that's why that language is there. Now, since January the 6th, various legal groups have been mulling challenges against Donald Trump, arguing that this language really ought to apply to him because of what happened on January the 6th. And Colorado's state court has found that it does. And that means that unless this is overturned by the Supreme Court, he won't be on the ballot in Colorado's Republican primary. But you said that this isn't likely to stick. 
Why do you say so? Yeah, I think that's right. The next step is that this will go to the Supreme Court in January. It's an untested legal theory. It hasn't been applied to a presidential candidate before. And there are good reasons for that, right? Donald Trump is, to use an understatement, unusual and presents extraordinary challenges to the US political system and to the Constitution. But it would be surprising, I think, if the Supreme Court were to endorse an untested legal theory like this with such huge consequences. Don't forget there's a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. Three members of the Supreme Court were appointed by Donald Trump. Now, I think they're probably quite keen to signal their independence. They're sensitive to the criticism that they're Trump's appointees and they're going to back him, whatever. But I just think this is likely to be a stretch for them. But we won't have all that long to wait, Ori. So it's very unlikely that the Supreme Court would endorse this. But what if they did? Would it make a difference? It would make a difference if they did. So the first thing that would happen is that Donald Trump would be off the Republican primary ballot in Colorado. And so he couldn't win in that state. Now, he's so far ahead in the Republican primary that a bunch of other states where he can pick up enough votes, that's not a huge problem. But were the same thing to happen in other states, that would provide an opening for another candidate, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, perhaps, to catch him. Now, the RNC, which runs the primaries, could say, we're just not going to recognise the results from those states. And so Trump wins anyway. But the same legal theory that applies to the primary applies to the general election in November. So were it to stick, Trump would, I think, not be on the ballot in Colorado in November 2024. Now, Democrats won Colorado handily in 2016 and in 2020. So that wouldn't make a huge difference to his re-election chances. However, what you could see is in various swing states that really matter in the Electoral College, i.e. really matter to who's going to win in 2024, you would see similar legal challenges. And if the court had already endorsed them, those would sail through. So a lot would come down to the leanings and the makeup of those state Supreme Courts. So yeah, if the Supreme Court endorsed this, which, double underline, I think it won't, that would be really consequential. So what happens now? What happens now is we wait for the Supreme Court to step in. And the court is going to have a pretty busy and contentious January when it comes to the 2024 presidential election. There's this case, which it'll have to rule on, which will then affect all those cases in other states. But then there's also the January 6th federal prosecution being brought by Jack Smith. And recently, he asked the Supreme Court to rule on this question of whether sitting presidents are immune from prosecution for everything they do while in office. So it has been understood since Watergate that they are immune, but on one level, that's a slightly crazy view. And so he's fast-tracked that question to the court. They'll have to rule on it. If the court rules in January that no, in fact, presidents are not immune from prosecution for absolutely everything they do while they're in office, then that ought to speed up that January 6th federal prosecution. So short version, January is a big month for the Supreme Court and the 2024 election. Is there a way that this could be good for Trump? I mean, we've seen legal twists in the past that have actually helped him in the polls. 
Well, my inbox is already full of fundraisers from the Trump campaign. Whenever there are legal challenges or legal reversals for the Trump campaign, they try to spin it as an assault on democracy. So turning the language that people used against Donald Trump after January the 6th, turning that accusation of subverting democracy back against his accusers. That's something Donald Trump is very adept at doing. It's something he'll do throughout 2024, playing the victim. In fact, he's already said as much to his supporters in Iowa. It's no wonder crooked Joe Biden and the far left lunatics are desperate to stop us by any means necessary. They're willing to violate the U.S. constitutions at levels never seen before in order to win this election. Joe Biden is a threat to democracy. It's a threat. They're weaponizing law enforcement for high-level election interference because we're beating them so badly in the polls. It works for the people who want to believe that he is the victim, if that makes sense. So I don't think it persuades a whole load of people who are undecided. Not that there are loads of those people in American politics these days anyway. But yeah, it doesn't seem to hurt him in the way you might expect it would hurt a candidate accused of all these things and accused of... In the Colorado case, judges have decided that he engaged in insurrection or rebellion or gave aid or comfort to the enemies of the United States. Now, that's pretty big stuff. John, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ori. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. The Dutch election was on November 22nd, and it was something of a shocker. A far-right party called the Party for Freedom, led by a populist named Geert Wilders, took 37 of the 150 seats in Parliament. And that has really shaken up the Dutch landscape. Ever since then, the parties have been rearranging themselves to try to form a government... Matt Steinglass is The Economist's Europe correspondent based in Amsterdam. Ever since the Party for Freedom was formed in 2006, other parties have excluded them from government and no one has been willing to say that they would actually enter a government with them, apart from a brief period in 2010. In European politics, that's called a cordon sanitaire. But that cordon sanitaire has now fallen and three other right-leaning parties the Liberal Party, or sort of a centre-right party, as well as two new parties, a farmer's party called the the Farmer Citizen Movement, and another new party called the New Social Contract are gearing up for coalition negotiations to form a government with the far right. This sounds like quite the mess. So the winning party hasn't even been able to secure power yet? Well, that's entirely normal for Dutch politics. There's quite a long period of coalition negotiations that always follows after any election. In this case, the main 
delay was that because other parties had initially been so reluctant to form a government with the far right, and because this has been a taboo for such a long time, there was an initial period where someone called a Verkenner, a kind of explorer, did some negotiating from party to party to see whether they were really willing to go into government with each other. It quickly became apparent that they were and that the moral qualms that had been held out by center-right parties were not really a concern for their voters. Ultimately, we're going to get a right-wing government, which will probably be the most right-wing government in modern Dutch history. And what kind of conditions are the other parties putting on their cooperation with Wilders? There's going to be an initial period at the beginning where they go over some guarantees that this far-right party of Heert Wilders is not going to violate the Constitution because that party has in its party platform all sorts of things like shutting down Muslim schools, banning mosques, banning the Koran, leaving the European Union and so forth. Those are no-goes for the other three parties, but the leader of the Party for Freedom, Geert Wilders, has said he is definitely willing to put those parts of his platform on hold. Geert Wilders presented himself during the campaign as a calm elder statesman, which is rather odd for a populist, but he's been in parliament for a very long time, and he's a very experienced and well-known politician. He is an excellent debater. He knows how to moderate his tone. And he has been playing that role during the coalition negotiations as well. So the odd thing is that this firebrand of a right-wing politician has now become a bit of a known quantity. And the dance that other parties are dancing with him is an effort to overcome his radical image and accept this milder, more compromise-prone image of himself that he's trying to project. How substantive that image is is a big question. But didn't the Liberals say that they wouldn't work with Mr. Wilders? The Liberal Party, which for the last 13 years has been the main party in government, has said that they will not actually go into government with Wilders, but that they are willing to do what's called a confidence and supply deal, where they would back a government led by Mr. Wilders in no-confidence votes and in the budget vote. That would allow that government to run the country. They just wouldn't supply any ministers. It's not 100% clear that they are even adamant about their refusal to join in a government. Some people think this is basically a negotiating stance. And I think the most important thing for people to absorb is that as soon as parties said that they were willing to back a government that was largely composed by the Party of Freedom, the barriers fell. What are Wilders and the Freedom Party's plans for these issues? It's a bit unclear what actual concessions Wilders plans to make. At this point, when the parties go into negotiations, there is media silence. So we're not going to know what compromises are being made for the next couple of weeks until the whole deal is done. But the issues that are important to other parties are, first of all, the constitutional issues, of course. The first article of the Dutch constitution guarantees equal treatment for all citizens and for actually any person in the Netherlands. So All of the planks in his platform about banning Muslim schools, banning mosques, anything that treats Islam differently, issues like that are going to have to be put in the refrigerator, as Mr. Wilders puts it. And the other parties will need some kind of guarantee that he's not actually going to try to push those issues while he's in government. What all four of these right-leaning parties agree on is that they want to cut immigration to the Netherlands. In particular, asylum-seeking has been a hot-button issue for at least a year. It was the issue that triggered the fall of the previous government. 
That raises some potential constitutional issues and issues around EU law because the Netherlands is signatory to the International Convention on Refugees, so they can't simply bar refugees from coming. The Netherlands doesn't actually have much of a migration problem, and the reason why people are moving to the country is that the economy is doing extremely well, but this has become an idée fixe in the Dutch political sphere, so the government is going to end up doing something about it. So Matt, what does this mean for the Netherlands and where it sits in the rest of Europe? Heert Wilders may be saying that he is moderating his stance, but a government led by Heert Wilders is going to be a very different player in European negotiations. The Netherlands, for a long time, has been a foot-dragger in European politics up until a few years ago. In the last few years, the Netherlands has been much more of a compromise player. They have been more open to the idea of expanding the EU, and they've been an extremely strong supporter of aid to Ukraine, both military and fiscal. That would really change under a Wilders-led government. One of the really interesting political analyses is that these elections have seen a bridge being built between the center-right and the far-right. And you've seen that in Italy with Giorgia Meloni becoming the main force on the right. You've seen that in France with the Republican Party shrinking and increasingly Marine Le Pen being the main figure of the right. And you saw that in these elections in the Netherlands. And that is a major shift in the way that European politics look. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ori. So anyone who lives in London or has even ever visited central London or Soho or the Theatreland will have seen its increasingly riotous pedicabs. So if you step out of the Lyceum Theatre after seeing The Lion King on a Friday night, the noise is cacophonous. Some 30 pedicabs, many fur-lined and dotted with bright lights, lie in wait. Tom Sass is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. Tuk-tuks have long been popular in South Asia, but here they're known as pedicabs, decked out with lights, fur, and as you can hear, blaring music. The pavements and streets now resemble a rickshaw edition of Pimp My Ride. They are quick to spot niches. Some cater to wealthy tourists from the Middle East. Cabs are emblazoned with pictures of Arab leaders and play traditional music. Others to drunk Britons, Union Jacks and Oasis. I took a number of rides on a recent Friday night in Soho and tried to speak to the drivers to sort of get a sense of this industry. Uh, Ten minutes. Uh, No, five minutes. So you negotiate a fare, but sometimes tourists forget to do that and you're charged by the minute and what that means is lots of people end up paying huge amounts of money for a short ride the ride that i took charged five pounds a minute for a five minute excursion which was the most that our expenses could extend to but you hear stories of some tourists who are charged as much as 300 pounds for a 10 minute ride late at night I mean, the experience itself is really quite embarrassing. You've got loud music blaring, you're travelling incredibly slowly down bustling streets and everyone's staring at you. Some people seem to think that would be a fun way to spend a Friday night. You own the bike? Is it your bike? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How much did it cost? Yeah. £8,000. Did you put the lights on it yourself? He 
told me that he worked for a bigger company, he'd been doing it for about two months, and that these bikes were pretty expensive. They cost £5,000 for a pretty basic one, quite a bit more than that if you want it to be fully pimped out with fur and lights and a big sound system. And, you know, he quite enjoyed this job. It was a way to make quite a lot more money than you could delivering groceries. From talking to others, I think you can make about £1,300 a week doing this sort of work, particularly if you can find some very drunk customers to ride around. A lot of the people I managed to talk to had been doing it for a few days or a few weeks, and a lot of them didn't want to talk very much about the employers that they worked for. How many hours do you work a week? Uh, 24 hours a week. Okay, just on the weekend or...? So the reason that pedicabs aren't controlled in the way that other types of taxis are in London is a pretty bizarre story. And it goes back to something called the Metropolitan Public Carriage Act, 1869. So that was a Victorian piece of legislation designed to regulate horse-drawn carriages. And it basically said that as long as the driver negotiated the fare with each rider, then there wouldn't be a particularly tight control on regulations in terms of how many of those vehicles there could be. And the pedicab operators in London have managed to argue that they should also fall under this very old piece of legislation. So there was actually a high court case in 2003 where they managed to successfully argue this. And what that means is it's so far proven impossible for the authorities in London, particularly Transport for London, to actually regulate pedicabs, despite the fact that there are 900 of them on London streets and a lot of people think they are an increasing nuisance. A bill will be introduced to deal with the scourge of unlicensed pedicabs in London. Unfortunately for the pedicab operators, that era is now coming to an end. In the recent King's speech, the government announced that it would finally be allowing for the regulation of pedicabs, and that means that Soho may be becoming a little bit less riotous sometime soon. Okay, we can get out here if that's okay. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. It's almost Christmas, only five sleeps to go. And I know that some of you are still scrambling for presents. Why not give the gift of knowledge? You can get a 30% discount on all gift subscriptions to our print and digital editions, which of course includes a podcast subscription too, by following the link in our show notes. Happy shopping, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.